Welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is your co-host, Dan Worley. I'm joined, uh, as always, by my co-host, Daniel Wallach. We have a just a tremendous guest again uh, joining us today. Uh, the sports law guy himself, Gabe Feldman, is on the phone joining us. Gabe, how's it going? I am doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, thanks for being here. It's really a, a pleasure to have you. I know... Um, a couple podcasts ago, we had Warren Zola on, and Dan mentioned that uh, Warren was one of the faces on Mount Rushmore of sports law. And if if, he, if he's on there, you know, Gabe is definitely the face right next to him. Dan, you want to give a little background on Gabe? Yeah, sure. I mean, we could take the entire program for that, but I'll try to tick off some of the highlights. You know, when you and I first conceived of the idea for Conduct Detrimental, and we were uh, pairing, you know, various guest possibilities, the first name we... Uh, you know, zeroed in on was Gabe Feldman. I mean, he's not the first guest we've had on, but he was the first one that we wanted to get. And lo and behold, uh, 13 episodes in or 12 episodes in, we have him. Uh, Gabe is, uh, you know, a, a man of many talents known to known to all of us in the sports law community. He's He's been both a friend, a mentor, and someone, you know, who's been, you know, just a great source of guidance professionally. He's the director of the Tulane Sports Law Program, and he's the uh, Tulane University Associate Provost for NCAA Compliance, recently named the Paul and Abraham Barron Associate, Associate Professor of Law at Tulane Law School. He's also the co-founder and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. And for those who aren't in the academic or or legal law school uh, community. Many might know Gabe from his frequent appearances on the NFL Network, uh, providing legal commentary on the uh, 2011 lockout, and then more recently, uh, his extensive coverage of the Deflategate saga. Gabe was actually in the Second Circuit courtroom for oral argument in early March and provided uh, commentary at various junctures throughout the Deflategate scenario. So we're really pleased to have him. And for me personally, you know, when I got into this, you know, I'm not in the business, but when I got into this sort of space, the first few people I met were Gabe, Mike McCann, and Warren Zola. And you can't meet three better people in sports law. And I, I, I really believe that being exposed to people like Gabe and Warren and Mike made me more excited about the field. And it really is our pleasure to have him join us today. Well, thank you for the introduction, Dan. And if, if I may just jump in and say it is truly an honor to be the 14th guest on this podcast. Um, I am, First I'm, I'm touched. Yes. The negotiations no, were, they were very difficult negotiations. Your, your needs, your, uh, uh, you know, what would you want? Green M&Ms and red M&Ms. They were just very detailed riders <laughs> to the contract. Yeah, and you, and you didn't get it exactly right, so uh, we'll, we'll see how this goes. But I, I may hang up at any moment, given how you've treated me so far. But, <laughs> but we'll, we'll proceed and, and take it take it step by step. Sure. Uh, just let's just start at the, at the top, Gabe. I mean, what what drew you into a career in sports law? I knew that you know you looked like you had some internships during law school, and then went on to private practice for a while. But I mean, what was ultimately the impetus for you pursuing a career in the sports legal field? I wanted to be in the sports industry. I was a sports and person. I didn't know what the and was going to be. It was either going to be sports and the law, sports and psychology, sports and management. So I took a year off after college to find myself. Um, I'm still looking, but I, in that year, I took every standardized test known other than the MCAT and applied to law schools, PhD programs in psychology, sports management programs, 
and couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do. And I decided to get a joint degree in law and psychology at Duke with the goal of either becoming a sports psychologist or a sports lawyer. So I had my mindset on it from, from very early on. And actually, if you look in my high school yearbook, uh, for my career goal, it says, when I grow up, I want to be general manager of the New York Jets. So this is something I've wanted to do for a very long time, and I was lucky enough to practice law at Williams & Connolly where I did about 50% sports litigation, 50% commercial litigation, and that really got me started on my career. But but I chose Williams & Connolly because they had a sports practice. Uh, And my first day of law school, I asked my sports law professor, who continues to be one of my mentors, Paul Hagan, I said, I want to go into sports law. What should I do? And he said, well, go to Williams and Connolly and work for a guy named Lon Babby. And I said, well, that's great advice. Thank you. I didn't know what Williams and Connolly was or who Lon Babby was, but I took his advice. And 11 years later, I'm at Tulane, but, but I was at Williams and Connolly for about five years, and that's where I got my foot in the sports store. Um, and that led me eventually to teaching at Tulane, which is the sort of the second part of the story I, could, I can tell you. But the the the... Short of it is, this is something I've always wanted to do, and um, I've been fortunate to be able to to pursue my dreams and actually do it. So it's 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 been in many ways a dream come true for me professionally. Hey, Gabe, what what led you into the academic world rather than um, simply remaining in a litigation environment? Uh, you know, trying and, and litigating sports law cases. Uh, you know, Williams and Connolly has a reputation for you know being one of the top sports you know, litigation practices in the country. Was there a moment where you uh, were drawn to, to the academic world or was it just, you know, more of a, you know, more by chance or luck, as they say in, in the daily fantasy sports jargon? <laughs> I, I think, um, if, depending on which test we want to apply, but, but I think there, there's a little bit of everything there. And the, one of the great things about going to Williams and Connolly is unlike a place like Proskauer Rose or, or Winston Strawn or, or some of these other firms that are more well-known for their sports practice and have people lined up out the door to work on the sports cases, Williams and Connolly is, has a bigger reputation for some high-profile white-collar crime cases, some political cases. So when I got there as a summer associate, I was assigned to two cases when I walked in the door. One was to negotiate or help negotiate a endorsement deal for Grand Hill, and the other one was to work on the Monica Lewinsky affair with um, President Clinton. And I was more excited about the Grand Hill case. And it really allowed me to sort of carve out a niche working on the sports cases. And one of the first clients I worked with was a guy by the name of Donald Dell, who started ProServe, and and he, along with Mark McCormick and IMG, are two of the pioneers uh, Mm -hmm. in the sports agency industry. And Donald decided he wanted to teach a seminar at University of Virginia Law School and needed help. So I raised my hand and I would drive down to UVA every other Friday to teach a course on Friday evening and Saturday morning uh, in Charlottesville at UVA with Donald. And that's what really sparked my interest in, in academia. I hadn't planned on going into academia, but I really wanted to help build a relationship with Donald. And this was a great opportunity to get to know him. And once I started teaching, I realized how much I enjoyed teaching. By the way, in that first class I taught at University of Virginia, and I was maybe 27, 28, we had a star student who wrote a paper for the class on age restrictions in the NBA uh, by the name of Michael McCann. I never and, heard of him. Never heard. Yeah, of him. I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. Can, can but you he wrote a really good paper. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I just he seems to have fallen off the face of the earth. So I, I, it's, it's a shame because he really seemed to have a bright future in sports law. Um, so but, you're taking my credit for Mike's success right now? Is that what's happening? I, I'm trying to. I try to every day, <laughs> but uh, no, Mike. Mike deserves all the credit, and and it was really a wonderful class because Donald has every story you could possibly imagine because he ended up hiring David Falk and then representing Michael Jordan and lots of the top NBA players that ever played the game. So, so Donald would tell these incredible, incredible stories, and then I would bore the students with, with the actual law. Um, and Mike was, was, was so obviously a star in that class. I didn't know what he'd become, but I knew he'd become something great, and, and his career has obviously exploded, and he's done wonderful things. Uh, but, but after that UVA class, which I ended up teaching for about four years while I was practicing, I, I started teaching my own class at Catholic law school. And I realized when I'd hop on the metro or get in the car to go teach, that the teaching felt like fun and then practicing felt like work. And that was a pretty good indication to me that perhaps I should try teaching as a full-time gig. Um, so I threw my hat in the ring, met Gary Roberts, who had started the program down here at Tulane, and got hired in 2005 to help Gary build the program. And then Gary left in 2007 to become dean at Indiana. And I took over the program, and I've been here ever since. So it was a little bit of luck a little bit of hard work, a little bit of good timing, and a little bit of a realization that academia is where I wanted to be. So you didn't just sort of fall into sports law. I mean, I meet, I meet a lot of students and young lawyers who right out of the gate, while they're in law school, they want to become agents. They you know, want to sort of get right into the sports industry. And then I look at the example that you've said. Of course, everyone has a different path and a different story. Uh, but there's something to be said about burnishing your your skills in a courtroom and in a law practice before transitioning over into uh, you know a, I guess a sports law path or in a or in a or in a sports industry. Uh, can you give us some of your thoughts on the various approaches for maybe making a you know an entry into the sports you know legal side? Uh, should should one practice for a certain amount of time, or there's really no there's no formula? I mean, how would how would you how would you advise how do you advise students that are debating um, you know how to get how to break into sports law? I think the good news and the bad news is there is no one path. So there's no wrong way to do it, but there's no specifically right way to do it either, which can be frustrating because up until you get to law school, there's a specific path and there are things that you do if you can do them. And if you do them well, you will end up being successful. With sports law jobs, it's not necessarily the case. Um, and it really depends what you mean by a sports law job. And so maybe if we back up for a second and define what a sports law job means. A lot of people, when they think of sports law, um, at least when I was in law school, I tell people I was in the, in the Jerry Maguire era, everybody wanted to be the super agent. And now it's the Billy Bean or Theo Epstein or Mike Tannenbaum era. Everybody wants to be the general manager of their favorite team. Um, if we define sports law as working for a sports team or a league or a players association or a sports organization, we're really talking about an in-house legal job. And then the path to getting that job is really the path to getting any in-house legal job. And almost always that requires some practice time because most of these organizations, whether the team or a league or players association or even a sponsor, don't have the capacity to train young lawyers. They need lawyers to come in and step right away and do the work. And the, the, the place you get the experience, the place you get the knowledge, the place you get the skills is either a law firm or a governmental agency or somewhere where you can practice. So if you want to be an in-house lawyer, nine times out of 10 or 99 out of 100, you're going to have to practice first. But 
again, more and more students, and I see it at Tulane and I see it at other schools where I, where I talk and I teach, want non-traditional legal jobs. They don't want to be the lawyer for the team. They want to be the general manager of the team. And if that's the job you're looking for, practicing law isn't necessarily going to help you because those skills don't translate. Um, and a lot of times the best way to get those jobs is to go right into the sports team and work your way up. And the good news is it means you get to skip the practice of law part of it, which a lot of students want to do. The bad news is you're often starting fairly low down in the organization and working your way up. And, and there's no guarantee of success, obviously. And if you go down the traditional legal track and you work for a law firm for a while and then hope to transition to a team or a league, uh, worst case, if it doesn't work out, you're a lawyer. If it doesn't work out and you start at the bottom of the sports organization, then worst case is, well, you don't have a job anymore, and what do you do next? Um, so there are lots of different ways you can get in. There's lots of different jobs in sports law. Um, I, I think people probably have an overly narrow view of what the sports law field is, because beyond, a, beyond what I've just talked about, there are all the jobs for the partners of the leagues or the association. So Coke or Nike or Adidas or Under Armour, most of them have sports lawyers. They're the ones who are negotiating the deals with the leagues or the players or the athletes, whoever it might be. Um, people don't often think of those as, as opportunities. International sports organizations, the International Olympic Committee, national governing bodies, uh, USADA, then you go into the college athletics realm and whether it's going in-house for a university and working on some college athletics issues or working in NCAA compliance or working way up to an athletic director, you know, the, the, there are countless options. So to figure out the best path, you really need to figure out what your goal is within sports law. And then you can start to figure out what the steps might be. Yeah. It's a really interesting, uh, debate on what, what sports law is and what it encompasses. And I would, I would suggest one thing that I tell people to do is to you know go look at the Sports Lawyers Association directory and look at some of what their jobs are. That that kind of covers the spectrum of what uh, you know lawyers in the industry do, and that's that's probably more traditional lawyer work as opposed to working with the team side. But um, there's a ton of good ideas out there, and there's there's certainly ways uh, to break into the industry that uh, aren't going to be you know starting as the assistant general counsel for the Atlanta Falcons. It's just those jobs are you know coming out of law school virtually impossible to get as Gabe mentioned. Gabe, talk a little bit more about you know your program at Tulane, what that encompasses, and sort of how it better prepares students who are interested in sports in, in getting those jobs eventually. So we have um, we were the first law school in the country to offer a sports law certificate, and now we're we're one still one of only uh, it's either two or three and. Some are starting to add other certificates. But we have the overarching sports law program, and part of the program is the opportunity to get a certificate, which is somewhere around a, what would be the equivalent of a minor in undergrad, where you're taking the core courses that, that in my mind, make up sports law. So if you ask me to define the academic side of sports law, I would say it is the application of a number of different areas of law to the sports industry, primarily antitrust, labor, intellectual property, contracts, torts, tax, business enterprises. So you end up taking those core courses, and then in your end of your second and third year, you take the capstone specific sports law classes where we look at specifically how antitrust and labor law apply in the sports industry, specifically how IP applies, and then some specific areas like Title IX, um, some common law issues, 
and, and that gives you the academic or curricular piece. And then we have the extracurricular piece, which are primarily designed not only to educate the student, to give them experience, to connect them to people in the industry, to help them network, and really, as, as you suggested, to help them understand what the different career paths might be and then how to set yourself in the right direction to get on that career path. Um, and so we have a lot of networking opportunities here. We have a lot of competitions that allow students to engage in experiential learning. So just in the next month, we have our 10th annual baseball arbitration competition, our pro football negotiation competition, our Mardi Gras moot court competition, which is uh, geared around a sports law case every year. We have our basketball competition coming up. We have the NBA All-Star Game coming to town here. We're going to have a series of events around that. Um, we have a bunch of sports law speakers coming in. We have several internship programs. We have a mentorship program. If there's something to be done around sports law, we're doing it here. And it's, it's really fun to see the students here, and it's, it's frankly the, the best part of my job, to see the students come in here with a dream to work in the sports industry and then more often than not achieve that dream if they stick to it. And so just in the last three years, we've had students get full-time jobs, and most of these are actually non-legal, but full-time jobs in front offices for the Green Bay Packers, the Miami Dolphins, the San Antonio Spurs, the Brooklyn Nets, the Texas Rangers, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, the Seattle Seahawks, and I'm missing a couple others. But those are just in the last three years, and those are directly out of law school. Um, and they're able to do it in part because of what they learn here, but, but probably even more so because of the people they meet here and the networking they're able to do while they're here. I mean, every, every year, this is uh, Dan Waller, every year I go to the Sports Lawyers Association. Actually, I've done it for the past two years. There is no greater representation at the SLA annual conference than the Tulane contingent. Uh, not only the practicing lawyers, but you probably, as a school, as an institution, you send more law students uh, to the SLA annual conference than the other, any other school. Uh, can you, you, you know, as, as someone who's actively involved with the SLA as a board member and last year as the program chair, can you, uh, can you sort of describe for the audience and, and for law students and young lawyers just how important it is to uh, you know, take advantage of networking opportunities and, and join organizations like the SLA? I'm, I'm a little biased, um, both because I'm on the board of the Sports Lawyers Association and because Tulane has a partnership with the Sports Lawyers Association. So we publish their their journal, their newsletter, both monthly and, and weekly. Um, but I don't think there's a better, and I don't think I'm overstating this, I don't think there's a better networking and educational opportunity than the annual Sports Lawyers Association Conference. And many of my students have met um, many people that have either led to jobs or at least have led to really good connections in the industry. And what's amazing about it, and you guys can speak to this because you've, you've been there before, uh, is it's really easy and it's in many ways designed to allow people at all levels to talk to each other and meet with each other. And it's incredibly informal. And although the panels are, are valuable, particularly when Dan and I are on the panel, uh, but even when we're not on the panel, um, it, it's really everyone recognizes the value in networking there and the network effect, the fact that everyone in the industry is there and realizes that they probably wouldn't have gotten to where they are without someone giving them a helping hand and talking to them at that type of conference. So you will see the top lawyers from the leagues talking to law students. 
um, sometimes the networking reception, sometimes at a bar, sometimes at dinner. It's really remarkable. And so I, I can't encourage you enough, whether you are a law student, an aspiring law student, a young lawyer, a, a more experienced lawyer, that, that there is no better conference to attend uh, in the sports industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I can recall being a little starstruck, not starstruck, but a little in awe of the experience the first year. And my, my, my takeaway from it was how approachable every person was. I wasn't big time by, by a single person there, anyone. And, and these are recognizable and some, some familiar names in the sports industry, which is so approachable and so down to earth. Uh, that uh, I, I haven't been to another legal conference quite like it. So, uh, you, you know, I, I've experienced what you've, what you've just described. Yeah, and, and I think many relationships that I have formed, and, and I, I end up, uh, if I'm on a panel with someone or, or, or they're visiting Tulane and someone will ask, how do you know that person? And I have to think, I say, you know what, I think I met them at the Sports Lawyers Association because I have met so many different people at the Sports Lawyers Association or helped build relationships that I already had. Um, and these may be people I only see once a year, but, but it's, a, it's a really great two, three, four days, how many days you choose to spend. So, again, can't recommend it highly, more, highly, more highly. It's usually sandwiched around some sporting event that you can attend. Um, and if you go, I would, again, go towards an eye, with an eye towards networking because that's going to be part of the big value you get out of the, out of the event. Yeah, this year I think it's in uh, Denver, Colorado, second week of May. Is that right? Yeah, yep. yeah. Okay. It's always around the second week of May. Um, so it, it's. Uh, it, I'd be curious to hear. I mean, you guys have been to a lot of conferences. I think Dan has been to four conferences on average every week. Uh, Dan Wallach over the last year. <laughs> so he, he can speak from experience. But I'm like we the really. Sean, I'm like the Sean Camp of sports law conferences. Or the Waldo, either one. I, I think of you more as Waldo than Sean Kemp, but um, but that's you know no disrespect, no disrespect to Waldo, but uh, but uh, it, it is it is a remarkable collection of of sports lawyers. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I'm uh, first off, it's like a thousand plus people, so just the sheer magnitude of it, it's fantastic, and it's not like you know the vast majority of those are law students. Not that anything be wrong with that, but just to make the point that. Everybody goes, and you know the jobs that I've had in the industry. All of my coworkers go. Everyone that's working in the industry, uh, you know, set up meetings, meet with people, and like Dan said, it's very approachable. I'm part of the leadership of the American Bar Association Sports Division, and we have uh, an annual conference as well. And I'll let you know that we strive to be like the SLA conference because we're not there yet. It's much much smaller scale, but. We look to the SLA as, as the absolute model in the industry. And so, uh, you know, when people ask for events to go to, that's definitely definitely the number one on the list, or it should be for everybody. Okay, we should definitely charge the SLA some ad time for this. Um, I know. You're on <laughs> the board of directors, Gabe. Can you, can you get us uh Yeah, I think you get us on the board for this, this year one. or something. <laughs> Uh, well, about, we can talk about that offline. How about making Dan Worley the outreach captain for you know Raleigh, North Carolina? How about that? Well, I've made him the outreach captain for Augusta, so let's, <laughs> I am I am we'll the outreach captain for, for Chicago still somehow. Um, haven't been oh, there, well, there in a year, but yeah. Do you do you, you have go. a cape? Do you get your own cape? I should. I should. I haven't gotten it. They must have gotten mixed up in the mail with all these names, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, moving on from from the SLA talk, now that we've uh, hit twenty minutes on that, um, 
Have you seen, like, because Dan and I were talking, we had uh, one of your former students on uh, last night to talk about some of the biggest issues of the last year of sports law, and we were talking about how 2016 seemed to be a sort of a banner year in sports law, and we were debating whether it was our obsession over it or whether actually was the case that sports legal issues are coming more mainstream by the year. I mean, have since you started your career, have you noticed a distinct change from how sports law, you know, is interacted with the, the mainstream media? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Before I get to that, I'd li- can I talk about the uh, Sports Law Association Conference for a few more minutes? I think there were, uh, in, in some ways, the perfect storm in the last, frankly, I, I don't know that it's last year exclusively. I think over the last five years, you can almost say that there's been an explosion. And, to me, in many ways, it started with the back-to-back-to-back lockouts in 2010. And if Twitter had been as big then as it is now, and it was still pretty big then, I, I think, or, or I should say, if the lockout happened this year, I think all of our heads would have exploded. Because as big as Deflategate was, and as big as the um, controversy was, and and everybody hanging on every word that every lawyer said and every filing and what every judge was going to do because it was dictating whether Tom Brady would miss four games or no games or something in between. Imagine you took that and multiplied it by every player in the NFL and there was the threat of losing a week of the season or maybe the entire season. And by the way, the name plaintiff in that case in the lockout was actually with Tom Brady and Drew Brees is on it. And um, so it, it was, to me, what really helped lead to the explosion of the interest in sports law, because it was one of the first times that I can remember, and obviously the impact of Twitter and social media and everything has, has accelerated all this, but the first time that people realized in mass what got me interested in sports law, which was if you really want to understand everything you can about your favorite sport, whether it's the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or whatever it might be, you need to understand how the law applies to it. And this was if you want to understand whether you're going to have games on opening day. You need to understand how the law is going to apply to it. So during that lockout, I remember distinctly, and, I, and I've said this many times, and I've, I've, I joke with him about it, Bobby Bear, who is a former Saints quarterback and nicknamed Cajun Cannon, has a great Louisiana accent, is now a uh, sports radio host down here. I would be on his show once a week because there was nothing else to talk about. And we were talking about the lockout. And he asked me, and this is one of my favorite moments as a, as a sports lawyer, he asked me about the Norris LaGuardia Act and whether a federal court could grant an injunction to block the lockout. And I said, I cannot believe that I'm having a conversation about the Norris LaGuardia Act with Bobby Bear on radio. <laughs> um, and th- it hit me then that if it impacts the sport, people want to know about it. And nothing impacted the sport more than the potential lockout, again, of the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL at the same time. And and we had all the big names involved, and it was players versus owners, billionaires versus millionaires. Um, And people were were terrified that they might miss a preseason game. So to me, that started the real explosion, and again, having Twitter and Facebook and everything along with it. And then it seems like every year we've had just a massive, massive case that has led to significant interest. So whether it was the bounty scandal here in New Orleans or it's Donald Sterling 
or it's Tom Brady. These are all cases that transcended sports. So not only do you have the sports fans who were living and dying with every word, but you also just had the general public fascinated by the Donald Sterling case, fascinated by this very wealthy person being caught on tape saying these horribly racist things and what this new commissioner was going to do to him, fascinated by the celebrity aspect of Tom Brady and the, the perception of the New England Patriots in some ways as the evil empire. Um, and th- these, were, these became bigger than sports. They became soap operas for the, for the entire country. But for the sports fans, this, this is, you know, there's nothing more um, life and death than your team. And then you add in the fantasy sports mix. And whenever a player gets arrested, I don't know what you guys get, but the first question I often get is, is he going to be suspended? And I want to know, you know, I ask, well, why do you care? Well, because I want to know if I should draft him for my fantasy team. Or should I pick up his backup? I mean, people are living and breathing this or ties into sports gambling or just into general fandom. Um, so to me, the explosion has been Twitter, social media, and an understanding, a better understanding, that if you want to know how these leagues operate, um, you need to understand how the law and the business applies. So whether it's the draft or the salary cap or free agency restrictions or amateurism restrictions, all of this every single piece of it is at least shaped in some way by a lawsuit or the threat of a lawsuit or lawyers drafting agreements or contracts, whatever it might be. And to me, that's what's piqued the interest. Um, And so I think the interest is only going to grow as people start to realize more and more how complex these issues are. Uh, And if they really want to become experts in this field or really want to understand the game they love, then they need to understand the law. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just still reeling from the revelation that there was something even bigger than Deflategate. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I entered the sort of the, you know, the, the field of trying to comment on these things during, you know, the New Jersey sports betting and the Deflategate, uh, you know, era, which came three, four years later. Uh, I couldn't imagine what Twitter would have been like during, uh, a, you know, a lockout with day-to-day legal developments. I mean, you were on television constantly in 2011 and, you know, during the lockout. So, yeah, I guess that was, uh, you know, the signal sports law story of the year. But are we going to have another labor, are we going to have another protracted labor battle at some point with the NFL or the NHL again? Is that is that sort of a one-shot deal that um, really didn't go anywhere and uh, it's negotiation or, 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 or nothing? Or are we staring down the battle of another major, you know, court cycle in a few years? Well, as, as sports lawyers and sports law professors, I can only hope, I really, I can only say I really hope we do. Um, you know, I'm tired of all this labor piece. I, I want to see some lockouts. I want to see some lawsuits. I want to see some unions dissolve. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly kidding. But it, it's... Uh, mostly, mostly. But I, I, I'm a sports fan too, so yeah, I, I like to see the games. But uh, I was a little surprised and impressed that the NBA was able to resolve, uh, get a new CBA without any opt-out. Uh, I thought we might see some fireworks there, but it's a testament to Michelle Roberts and Adam Silver and the members of the union and negotiating team for the league that they were able to avoid that. Major League Baseball has been a model of labor peace now for two, decade, two decades, which is pretty remarkable. So if there's any hope for a lockout, as you said, the NHL, I think there's an opt-out in 19 or 18, I forget the year, and then the NFL, you know, not for another five years when the agreement expires. 
uh, history tells us anything we can expect uh, a fight in in both leagues and with the NBA, we had new players, and by players, I mean commissioner and, and head of the uh, Players Association. For the NHL and the NFL, we have old uh, enemies, so to speak, and Don Fear has a history of being combative when it comes to labor disputes, and, and Gary Bettman has shown that he's willing to fight. And, you know, if history tells us anything, we're, we're in for a labor dispute with the NHL and the NFL, who knows? Uh, um I doubt at this point, based on where we are, that we'll see anything like the lockouts we saw in the NBA and the NHL in the past, because in my mind, what led to the lengthy work stoppages, whether it was in the NHL and the NBA or in Major League Baseball back in the 80s and before that, or actually the 90s and before that, was that one side was seeking a fundamental change in the structure of the league and the structure of the relationship between the players and the owners. So it was either the implementation of a salary cap or the elimination of the reserve clause or something like that. And we seem to have reached a bit of an equilibrium in most of the sports where now they're fighting around the edges, but they're not fighting for those fundamental changes. We we seem to be pretty locked in to either no cap in baseball with the luxury tax or hard caps or quasi hard caps or soft caps in the other leagues. And now we're just fighting over percentage points. Those percentage points are obviously significant. So there'll still be big fights, but I don't know if those fights are big enough to warrant any protracted work stoppages. So it's hard to imagine now either of the leagues, the player associations, the NHL and the NFL having an easy resolution. Um, but I, but it's also not hard to imagine them resolving these agreements resolving these disputes without any work stoppages. I'm interested to hear your take on one point that we discussed again last night, and that is uh, the issue of uh, Roger Goodell's power to discipline players. And do you think that is an issue by itself that could cause a lockout? I don't. I really don't. And I I say that for at least a few reasons. Um, First, there may be some modifications, and, and we'll see what the owners decide to come up with, but they may decide to compromise and come up with a hybrid approach that mirrors more what the other leagues do that would either give the commissioner final say if the punishment is below a certain threshold, like we see in other leagues. So if the suspension is below a certain number of games or if the fine is below a certain amount, then there is no review beyond the commissioner's discipline. Um, but if it's above a certain amount, then there is outside um, arbitration possible. Or we might see the flip, because to, to me, the, the NFL or the, and the commissioner in the league, they're more worried about the, the, the really significant issues, and they don't want an outside arbitrator interfering with what the commissioner thinks is best for the league. But, I, but I, so I, there may be a settlement. There may be some compromise before we get to the deal, and they've certainly got plenty of time to work on that. Uh, as one. And then two, I think for the same reason it didn't lead to any any significant work stoppage beyond the missing of the Hall of Fame game back in 2011, uh, this still only affects a small number of players. And we've seen that it can affect anyone. And if it could affect Tom Brady, it means nobody's immune. But I think most players believe that they're not going to be punished by the commissioner. And in reality, most players won't be punished by the commissioner, at least for conduct off the field. And if they're not going to be punished, then it's not worth it for them 
to give up any money to make a change, or it's not worth it for them to miss any games. Uh, and there may be a groundswell, given that they feel the commissioner's abused his power here, and the Players Association, whether it's Samora Smith and whoever might be at the head of time, um, and enough of the players might say, look, th- we are going to die on this hill, but when push comes to shove, and you're talking about a player potentially missing any portion of his salary and of his very short career, uh, I-, I think the players, and it's probably a wise decision, frankly, in the long run, will be willing to give on that issue to be able to make sure that they are given better um, financial terms under the agreement. So, so I don't see it as something that would lead to a lockout. And, and I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, again, given how long we have until the new agreement, that they'll be able to reach some sort of compromise that provides both what the commissioner wants in terms of being able to protect the league and, and what the players want in getting more protection from what they perceive as arbitrary and unfettered um, disciplinary power. But what do you guys think? I, I, I sense that, that at least one of the Dan's disagrees with that and thinks that the players would be willing to miss games for this. The, this Dan actually gave a very similar answer to that question last night, or I don't know if it was a question, but I basically said the same thing. And also, you know, I, I think the huge outrage that came, you know, right after the ultimate decisions in Deflategate and Peterson, you think about the current life cycle of an NFL player is, what, three to four years. So, you know, half or more of the league is going to be gone by then. We're going to have a whole new crop of players coming in that are going to have heard about Deflategate when they were in high school or a freshman in college. And, and so the reality is, you know, the outrage from those decisions, assuming that it doesn't keep moving forward in that direction, uh, will have gone away and they won't know as much about it. So, again, when we get down, push comes to shove at the negotiation table – you know, these, that's not going to be fresh in their players, those players' minds, and it's only going to affect a very small percentage of them every year, none of which think it's going to be them, Tom right. Brady. So um, I ultimately don't think, uh, you know, it is something that could lead to a lockout. Dan? Yeah, for me, the issue that stands out the most, and, and it's one that I think has been accepted industry-wide, the illusory nature of guaranteed contracts. You sign a five-year deal – um, and it's not a five-year deal. It's a one-year deal that's renewable at the team's option, or they can cut you, or they can uh, force you to take a pay cut. In the NBA, if you sign a five-year contract and you underperform in year one, uh, well, the team is stuck with the, with, the, with, the, with the guarantee that they gave you. In the NFL, it's, it's very pliable, and if you underperform, um, your contract uh, you know, is either going to be adjusted, uh, jammed down your, you know, crammed down your throat, or their team is going to cut you. Um, is there any hope uh, that, that the players can – Gabe, do you think there's any hope that the players can fight and, and prevail on, on some greater levels of guarantees to their contracts? Well, there's nothing in the CBA that prevents those from happening. I mean, those are still individual negotiations. So th- there, there is nothing systemic um, and nothing that the owners were able to beat the players over to say that you can't get guaranteed contract. It's just that this is what um, the majority of the players are able to get during these individual negotiations. Now, could they, in theory, negotiate something for the standard player contract to be a guarantee? I, I suppose. But the nature of the game, and again, this this goes with the, the high injury risk and short careers, um, and having a salary cap, it, it's, it makes it difficult. So I think you'd need to see a broader restructuring and obviously, the way the NFL 
counteracts the lack of guaranteed contracts is by having the signing bonuses or the guaranteed money. And you're right. A lot of times those deals are illusory and they're big numbers, but the player doesn't get to see most of that. Um, but again, that, that's a lot of times comes down to the individual player leverage. And um, I think some would say the fungibility of some of the players at the lower end. But uh, again, that, that's not something that they're prevented from doing now. It's just not something a lot of players are able to get, but it it obviously raises a broader issue of the um, health and welfare and safety of these players and the risk that these players take. And when people say, again, coming back to the lockout, when it's billionaires versus millionaires, well, not every NFL player is going to be a millionaire, uh, particularly if you think the average career and the number keeps changing. But let's say it's four. Um, there are plenty of guys who only play for a year or don't even play for a full year, and they're not millionaires. And even if they are a millionaire, that's their life earnings. You know, that, that's it. And then they've got to find some other job. And, and if they're not able to because of the, the abuse they've taken as a football player, um, I, I think we've gotten to the point where most recognized on both sides of the table, owners and players and retired players and certainly fans and, and media, that we need to do more to protect our current and retired NFL players. Um, and, and, and providing more guaranteed contracts is – is a way to do that, but but there's so many pieces that would have to shift with that um, that, I, that I don't expect that to be a major feature in, in the, the next deal. Um, but again, it's so far from now, who, who knows? Is the NFL, in your opinion, doing enough to protect players uh, and prevent the kinds of problems that they're experiencing when they leave the game? Or are they just disposable commodities? Uh, well, I wouldn't say they're disposable commodities, uh, and uh, it's a hard question that starts with the premise that football is an inherently dangerous game, and we all know it's an inherently dangerous game. Um, the science has advanced, I think, significantly. We still don't know a lot, but I think we know enough now that the, the question is, um, in some ways, um, the, well, not the question, but the understanding is that the players are assuming the risk at this point, and we can argue as we're going to see in, in lawsuits for the next who knows how many years, uh, whether the players were able to assume a risk that they didn't know about or whether they didn't truly, truly know the risk 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago and whether the league knew things that the players didn't know. But putting that aside and just getting us to, to present day, um, I know the league is an easy target. I know the league gets a lot of criticism. Um but there's a difficult tension here between protecting what people believe to be the core of tackle football and the safety of players. And when the league tries to tinker with the rules, you get a chorus of half the people saying, good, it's about time you protected the players. And of course, of half the people saying, terrible, we want the old game back. And this is watering the game down and not the game we love. And so I, at a point, you just have to accept that there are significant risks. And I think all the leagues are trying. And again, you can question whether they're, they're trying hard enough, whether they're putting enough money aside. But they've certainly made a significant financial commitment at this point to trying to protect the health and safety of their players. Because, again, say what you want about the league and what, about what they may have done in the past or have not done in the past for players. But even from the most cynical, selfish perspective, the league knows it needs its players on the field and wants to keep its players healthy because the players are the product. Um, and I, I think 
again, given that there's only so much you can do to protect the health and safety of the players, and, and then there's just going to be some inherent harm and inherent danger to playing the game, um, I do think they've made significant strides. And we will see what the outcome of some of the individual concussion cases is going forward. Uh, but, but again, let me ask you guys. Well, I, again, my sense is at least one of the Dans, maybe both of the Dans, does not think that the, NF, the NFL and protect, potentially the NHL and the WWE and and FIFA and all these other organizations have, have not done enough. Well, I'll take the side of not thinking they've done enough. I mean, uh, you know, 50, 50 lawsuits against the NCAA. You have players that give their, you know, give their blood, sweat, and tears to the game, and they're committing suicide. You know, Dave Dewerson shot himself in the chest, and uh, Junior Seau, the list goes on and on. Uh, I mean, this doesn't happen to all of the players, but it happens to many of the players while the leagues continue to stonewall uh, plaintiffs' lawyers in, in um, ensuring that benefits get to, get to these players. Yeah, I mean, could more, what, has something been done? Has the NFL been more proactive recently? Um, perhaps, but I think that settlement is a, is a pretty bad deal. It's, it's pennies on the dollars relative to what the NFL brings in annually. And uh, what the NHL has done is even more disgusting. I mean, they've actively concealed, based on the evidence revealed in the motion for class certification filed last week or last month, um, there, there are anecdotes of the NHL concealing, uh, you know, concussion diagnoses from several of their players, Mike Peluso in particular. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'll never come around to the notion that the leagues are going to do anything voluntarily that's the right thing until, until they're pressured or forced by a court to do so. And until the leverage, until the, uh, until the pendulum swings in favor of the players in some of these court cases, I'll never believe that the leagues do enough. I mean, the settlement agreement, uncapped, uh, I mean, it really doesn't provide uh, nearly enough level of compensation compared to what we may find out about what the NFL concealed from its players uh, generationally. So uh, I'll definitely take the plaintiff's side on it based on what I've read and, 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 and my understanding of the severity of some of these cases. Yeah, I'm also of the opinion that they you know, haven't done enough and for a lot of the reasons that you guys have mentioned. Uh, but I think, as you guys have both sort of alluded to, you know, the inherent problem here is that the NFL is a business – and oftentimes making these sort of changes would be bad for the business. And so they would have to make an active choice to do something to submarine their own business in order to protect the safety. And so there's a lot of tension between those two things. I, I do think that they've gotten better. But at the same time, we've also seen uh, demonstrated evidence that would force me to distrust what the NFL's true motives are, such as you know earlier this year when they uh, pulled the funding on some concussion research. Uh, and I can't remember the exact uh, research institution, but that, that again, made, made the NFL's, um, you know, so-called commitment to player safety um, calls it into question. And so I, I, I just can't, can't believe that they're doing everything that they can at this point. And, um, ho you know, hopefully they're moving in the right direction and, and hopefully taking this thing more seriously. But, uh, at this point, um, I, I'm really hoping that the big thing doesn't happen that would really bring this to the, the national media's attention. That is someone dying on the field. I think if a player dies on the field, it may be what it takes for this to become the really huge game-changing issue. Well, 
I'll tell you who's, who is doing a lot for former and current professional athletes. That would be the Center for Sport at Oh, nice. Segway. Um, Gabe, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Center for Sport at Tulane, uh, your involvement, and what you're doing for former and current professional athletes that the leagues may not be doing until ordered <laughs> to do so by a court? <laughs> Well, let me just say um, a few more things about the Sports Lawyers Association Conference before we get <laughs> to this topic. Uh, um, I'm going to keep telling that joke until it, it becomes funny. Uh, so, uh, as long so as you let me make, say, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. As long as you don't make fun of my being at so many conferences, I'll, I'll you know, definitely enjoy. You can, you can go on and on about the SLA. I, uh, I you can never do enough. <laughs> Uh, positive commentary about the fine work they do and all the wonderful relationships that uh, arise out of that conference. But go tell us, tell us I, about I the will, Center for Sport. Okay, I will never promise to not make fun of you, so I, I can't make that, that <laughs> promise. But um, the the so the, the Center for Sport uh, really came about uh, in 2010, right around the time of the NFL lockout, when we realized that the NFL was going to be putting aside a significant amount of money to benefit the health and safety of retired players. And there was a hope that the players association and the league would be able to figure out how to spend the money together. And they've, they've in many ways spent it separately, both with the same mission. But um, what I realized was that we have a Tulane Institute for sports medicine here on campus. And we also have the Tulane sports law program. And, Greg Stewart, who runs our Sports Medicine Institute, was doing a lot of work with the NFL, NFL-related issues, while I was also doing a lot of work with NFL-related issues. But we were working next to each other and not with each other. And we realized that a lot of the problems facing current and former athletes don't have simple solutions either in the medical field or in the legal field or business field, that really you need an approach that brings all these different disparate fields together to help the athlete to help the person. So if an ath former athlete comes to you and says they are depressed, you can say, well, are you depressed because you are suffering from some injury? Are you depressed because you're no longer playing football? Are you depressed because your family situation, because of the legal situation, whatever it might be, that you need to really approach it from all angles. And so Greg and I started working together to create the Center for Sport that brings all of the different departments on across campus together to study the sports industry and to help athletes at all different levels, whether it's at the professional level, the youth level, high school, college, um, Olympic, whatever it might be, while they're playing, but also thinking about the issues they face as they transition out of their sport. So it's, if you're a pro football player and you retire, if you're a college football player and you stop playing, or if you're transitioning to the NFL, whatever it might be. Um, and what was really unique to us here at Tulane is we are the only institution in the world, as far as I know, that has a sports medicine program and a sports law program. And so we really come from two areas of strength. And so we've added in our business school, our school of social work, public policy, public health, center for aging, architecture, everything you can think of to try to tackle the sports industry. And so we actually have partnerships with the NFL. And, and Dan, this is a voluntary partnership. No court has ordered the NFL to do this. That does screenings for Surprise. former players all across the country. We have a partnership with the NFL Players Association that treats players when they come here to campus. We have partnerships with Major League Baseball and their Urban Youth Academy. We have partnership with the NBA Retired Players Association, um, lots of teams. So we're really 
I think able to offer something to the sports organizations, but also to our also to our students to get a unique cross disciplinary approach to to sports and to do what I would argue the leagues uh, do do voluntarily, and sometimes they're ordered to do it, and sometimes they have to do it via a court settlement. But they they do care about their their players. And they do care about their former players. Whether they do enough, again, I think that that can be subjective, and there's certainly room for debate about that. Um, but but I but I do think to come back to our previous point, um, I, I think if if you look and again we we can we can fight about what they've done in the past, but if we bring it to the present, I, I think the NFL and the NHL and the other leagues have made a commitment, have made a significant investment to protecting their current and former players. Again, we may say it's not enough, but I do, do think they've they've changed in many ways for the better, and I think we all hope it makes the game safer. But again, have to keep in mind that. People are going to get hurt, and people are going to get seriously hurt. And just because somebody gets hurt, and again, I'm not suggesting this is an answer to any of the lawsuits, but just because somebody gets hurt doesn't mean that they violated the law or, or that the, the league has violated the law or the team has violated the law or the player who hurt them has violated the law. Um, sometimes there, that, that there are risks that are inherent that we accept and we assume. Um, but we'll see how the lawsuits play out. One, one last point I just, I just want to make. What I think is interesting about how we consume a lot of information now, particularly in the sports area, is the more access we get to the filings in these cases, whether it's the complaints or the briefs or the motions, whatever it might be, um, the the more one-sided or, or polarizing I think these, these stories become because we're really reading the work of advocates that are paid to paint one side of the story. And obviously, you can read the other side of the story when the other side responds. Um, but but I think it, it becomes a little dangerous sometimes to just accept the allegations of the complaint or the allegations in the brief or, or the arguments that are being made. And sometimes we don't get the full nuance or the full understanding of the uh, of the story. And again, I'm not saying that's the case in any particular situation. But it's interesting when the news comes from a legal filing. Uh, as opposed to the reporting on the story uh, that gets into more detail and not just a perspective from the the advocate. Yeah, it's interesting. Dan and I are both big proponents of, you know, tweeting out pieces of briefs, and uh, you know, I post a ton of them on my website. I think it's an interesting way to learn about a case. But one of the biggest things that I've had trouble with with fans out there tweeting at me. Um, are, are assuming these are they're true that everything in there is absolutely true, and so I think that's a really right. good point that um, you know you have to understand it from the context of if it's a judge's opinion it's one thing but if it's a um, you know a party advocating for their interest they're going to leave out the stuff that hurts them and they're going to add in the stuff that helps them and probably spin that to the point where it's you know barely true um, so you got to take it with a grain of salt and I, I think the people are getting better at that from what I've seen but it's still I, your point is very well taken on the one-sided reporting at times. So, yeah, and, 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 and just to be clear, I did not mean uh, I love when you guys and I've done it myself tweet out pleadings and post the pleadings. I think it's an incredible service, and I think it's a great way for people to learn. Uh, but, but as you said, particularly on Twitter, there's a, people have a way of taking things out of context, and yeah. I've quoted things from pleadings 
that that were written by one of the lawyers and people will say, I cannot believe you believe that you're an idiot and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's actually, I'm just quoting, you know, that's why there are quotation marks. I don't, don't usually <laughs> put quotation marks around things that I say. I just say them. Um, usually, uh, usually sometimes I like to quote myself, but, but right, I mean, right now I'm doing air quotes if you guys can see it. Um, <laughs> but so, so I, I don't, I don't want to, to, to mix up the two things. I, I think it's a tremendous service and tremendous value to be able to see the pleadings and you can learn a lot and you get a much better understanding of the case. But when it comes to the both sides of the story, obviously just reading one pleading is not going to give you both sides of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Drawing yeah. conclusions is a bad thing. Um, Gabe, I, I dug deep on your CV um, and, and just kind of this rung a bell, but uh, talking about sort of just the general sports industry, I, I saw that you're writing an article called, uh, what is it? The uniqueness of sport is that right? The uniqueness of sports for the Paul Law Journal, and I was curious to what that's about because it sounds fascinating. Well, um, it's it's based on a lot of things I've written about in the past and, and thought about in the past and, and taught in the past, and, and I, I've I brought this up at a, uh, a conference at DePaul that that, uh, that Dan Wallach was at. And the reason I Dan was at yeah. it because it was because it was a sports law conference, so Dan had to be there. Um, <laughs> sorry, well, I'm making myself hands. laugh now, but <laughs> right, that's true. This is one of those. Sorry, rare, right. I was there too. Man, yes, right. one conference of the year that I could join. I was talking to. about Dan Worley. I don't know Dan Wallach. Why you always think I'm talking about <laughs> you? But, um, so the, the question I posed in that paper, and I don't know that I have great answers to it, is. If you look at a lot of cases, and whether it's involving the NCAA or the NFL or really any sports entity, one of the arguments that's often mentioned, if not always mentioned, is that the law should apply differently to fill-in-the-blank, whether it's the NFL, the NCAA, Major League Baseball. Um, so if you look at the historical antitrust exemption for baseball, or if you look at the amateurism defense for the NCAA, or you look at the non-statutory labor exemption, um, whatever it might be, the leagues argue the law should apply differently because the leagues are unique. There's something special about them that means they need special treatment under the law. And the question I try to explore is, is that right? Do we need to apply the law differently because these leagues and sports organizations are unique? Or are we applying the law in a unique way because they are sports organizations? And maybe there's nothing unique about them other than the fact that they are uniquely popular. Um, so wh why did, where does the special treatment come from? Do they need special treatment? Do they deserve special treatment? Or are they just getting special treatment? Because in some cases, and, and the, the Kurt Flood case in the Supreme Court is probably the best example of this, that judges don't see as clearly or Supreme Court justices don't see as clearly when the case involves sports, which is why you end up with an opinion, part one in the, in the Flood v. Kuhn opinion, which is an ode to baseball. And there's no other opinion that I'm aware of in the history of opinions that has an ode to the industry that it's addressing um, at the beginning of the opinion. And so I think we end up seeing a lot of or sometimes irrational or illogical decisions in sports cases. And, and my question is, are they irrational or illogical because they have to be because the industry is unique, or are they just irrational or illogical? Um, so that, that's what that paper explores. Interesting. Yeah. So you, you said you didn't come to an answer yet? or you? Well, I, I can't spoil it. You know, okay. I, I need to get the clicks on the, uh, on the article. The Paul Lodger um, article, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think... Well, it's it's all about it's all about the clicks, but but I think it's um, my my answer is it's a little bit of both. I think there are cases where the leagues are unique. I think there's some where they're not, and 
uh, again, I think the NCAA and the amateurs in defense is a perfect example of that. I, th- I think there's a little bit of both, and, and that's another case where there, there's not a lot of gray in these debates. The, the, these debates are so polarizing that either the NCAA is 100% wrong and student-athletes have to be paid, or the NCAA is completely right, and if we give them a penny, then college athletes will be destroyed. And to me, the answer is somewhere in the middle, that the NCAA is unique in some ways, but maybe not unique enough to be entitled to the deference uh, that they're getting right now. Yeah, um, Gabe. In the scant uh, 180 minutes we have left on the podcast, uh, we'd, we'd be we'd be remiss if we didn't turn our attention to um, one of your recent articles that has uh, garnered a lot of attention uh, in you know NCAA circles. You've proposed a model for compensating um, you know college athletes uh, that is sort of like O'Bannon-ish, but not quite. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about your proposal for compensating uh, collegiate athletes and where things stand with that proposal currently? Well, in fairness, I, I don't want to take too much credit for the proposal. I think a lot of people have proposed something similar. Um, so w- what I would say is I maybe have combined many ideas into a proposal and and explained why I think the proposal would be palatable to the NCAA and why, in fact, it might strengthen their legal arguments. Um, And so I presented a white paper to the Knight Commission that was addressed to a very specific issue, and that is whether the NCAA could allow third parties to pay current student-athletes and former student-athletes, but but, um, more important current student-athletes, for the use of their name, image, and likenesses in any context. So that could be video games, like the O'Bannon case started out in. That could be autographs. That could be appearances and commercials. That could be appearances at the car dealership. Anything other than game-related use of name, image, and likeness, which is, which is two huge carve-outs. So student-athletes would not be entitled to compensation for use of their name, image, and likeness in television broadcasts, which is really why O'Bannon became a big case, because that's what the case evolved into, and wouldn't be paid for uh, playing the game itself. But for everything else around it, they would be entitled to payment with really two big protections put in place. One is that there would be some metric used to ensure that these were legitimate payments, that were designed to compensate them for the use of their name, image, and likeness. So you'd come up with some formula to figure out what the market rate would be and make sure that this was in the sort of the zone of the market range um, to avoid the possibility that a school was using a third party to pay them money to lure them to come to the school um, and to, to prevent abuses of the system. And the second one would be that the money would be put in a trust fund and the students would only get access to it once they either graduate or exhaust their eligibility. Um, to to protect against the fear that student athletes aren't and I'm not necessarily saying this is a fair concern but the concern that's been expressed that student athletes wouldn't know what to do with the money that it would interfere with their academic goals um, and that it would create a rift between student athletes and the general student body and, and so my, the the paper I wrote goes through all the defenses the NCAA has made as to why they shouldn't be uh, required to do this and why it might destroy amateurism might destroy college sports my general premise or, or, or conclusion is that allowing these third parties 
to pay the student athletes for non-game related name, image, and likeness is consistent with amateurism, is more narrowly tailored to protect the NCAA's interest, and would actually strengthen their ability to argue that they shouldn't have to pay or be, um, be allowed to pay or required to pay student athletes for, for playing the actual games. So that was the proposal. Um, it was considered by the members of the Knight Commission. I talked to some people at the NCAA, and again, it was not the first time they've heard a proposal like that. I think it was the first time all of the specific protections were put in place the way I put them in. And progress, uh, we'll see. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any real movement on it now. I think some people have started to express the opinion, and not because I wrote it, but because other people have expressed it before, that this may be the way we need to go, that there is an unfairness in the way that college athletes are treated, there is an exploitative element, um, and that the current anti-compensation rules or restrictions on compensations are more restrictive than necessary, and that we can still protect the student athlete, we can still protect the academic institution, we can still protect the product while allowing them to be paid by third parties. Because the budgetary issues go out the window. Um, or, or significantly minimized, because we're not talking about Ohio State and LSU or Tulane or Ball State finding room in their budget to pay the student-athletes. This money would come from third parties. So I have a couple questions. So I think you may have just answered one right there, but so all of this money would come from outside of what is comprised of the current NCAA pie. Is that is that right? Right. I mean, the, the, the restriction that I put on, again, the paper, and there's room for for – uh, modification here is that this could only come from third parties, that, that it could not come from the institution itself. Now, some might say, but some of that money would otherwise go to the school and is now going to the student athlete, and, right. and that's fair. So there may be a displacement, um, but we're not talking about the school having to find an extra $100,000 or $200,000 or $1 million, whatever it might be. This is Nike deciding, are they better off spending their money on the 15th version of the jersey for Oregon, or um, having one of the Oregon players or non-Oregon player um, be one of their, um, endorse their brand. Interesting. And my second question is, you mentioned that there would be criteria for, um, you know, what how players could get this third-party money, but is who would be the enforcer of whether they're doing this right? I mean, is that something that's going to fall in the NCAA's lap, or is there going to be sort of a separate group entity made to look over this new revenue stream? Either one would be fine. Uh, I, I, I had both ideas in an initial draft. Um, I, I think it could be an NCAA committee that is created to oversee this. I, I think there there are many, many very smart economists and branding experts and marketing experts who could probably come up with a fairly – um, easy formula to apply. And I don't think it would require a lot of work on individual deals. It might qu require a lot of work to come up with the initial formula. But again, I think it can be done. And whether it's an inside group or an outside group or some mix, uh, I, I think that the details, although the devil is in the details, I, I think those details can be ironed out. And if we come to an agreement that the student athletes should receive um, should be able to receive compensation for name, image, and likeness. Then, then I think we can figure out those details. But, but I don't, I'm not. I don't have a strong position on whether it's an internal group or an external group or some hybrid of the two. And I and I get and I and I heard a lot of this pushback that it's impossible to figure out the market. Um, 
I have a tr- I have trouble with that argument because it's impossible to figure out the market because we've not allowed a market to exist. And if we allowed a market to exist, we would get to a market rate. And yes, there may be the incentive for the local car dealership in Tuscaloosa or Baton Rouge to give election money to the offensive linemen to show up at the car dealership. Um, and, I, and I recognize there's some room for potential abuse, but I think the room for abuse is greater with the system as it currently exists. And I think pushing everything under the table um, makes it more likely that it will be abused and leads to the punishments that I think most people think are unfair and unreasonable um, and don't have any real impact on the, on, on the student-athlete's ability to enjoy their educational experience. And there are rules that are in place because they've been in place for a long time. And I understand the slippery slope argument. I understand the argument that if you open it up at all, then it's going to lead to the demise completely of amateurism, and that leads to the demise of college sports. I I think those fears are a little bit overstated. And again, I think there's some room between a blanket restriction and a complete open market. And so the question is, how do we find that sweet spot in the middle? Well, you know, Gabe, your your, um, proposal, your white paper was very well received. I mean, a number of members of the Knight Commission – uh, commented positively, favorably on it, Lon Kruger. What has to happen next? You know, is there is 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 this uh, uh, commission any, uh, anything more than just a, a body that makes recommendations to the NCAA? What kind of a, a time horizon? Uh, what actions have to take place between now and you know several years from now for a system like this to actually become implemented? How far away are we? Well, in fairness, I promised them I would get them a final draft of of the of the paper, and once that was in, they would they would agree to those changes. Um, and I just haven't gotten it to them yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's so on, it's of, on me. It's all on of me. the NCAA athletes, Gabe <laughs> Feldman is the reason you are not earning money for your names, images, and likenesses. You can find yeah, them at the so, SLA conference. Yeah, you can at, find me at wallachlegal at gmail dot com. Yeah, at sports law guy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a great question, and there are to give you two broad answers. One is it may take further litigation to get the NCAA to make any significant changes. The other is it's going to take university presidents and athletic directors and conference commissioners to come together and say, look, if we don't change the system, the changes are going to be forced on us. And we all know that there are some significant lawsuits hanging over the head of the NCAA right now that threaten to make my model look modest. And um, You're talking about the Jenkins case? Yeah, the, the Jenkins case, the, um, the Alton case. And, and you know, that, that's looking at and saying, look, O'Bannon wasn't asking for enough. It's not enough to say we will, they have the right to get paid for their name, image, and likeness. They have a right to get paid and leave it up to the schools to decide, or at least leave it up to the conferences to decide. And the, the toothpaste may be out of the tube or the, you know, the barn door is already open, whatever expression you want to use, that, that allowing modifications to allow for name, image, and likeness may not matter at this point because those lawsuits are already underway. But if those lawsuits are not successful, then to me – um, the best way to fend off the next lawsuit or avoid the next lawsuit is to provide better treatment for the student athletes. And I think a way you can do it and mm-hmm. and avoid a lot of the fears that the NCAA has is to allow this name, image, and likeness payments. Um, and you know the, the the argument that you you don't hear as much, although people still make it, is is well, it's going to destroy competitive balance because 
all the best players are going to go to the schools that have the boosters who are willing to pay the most money for the student athletes to appear in commercials. We all know the answer to that, I think, at this point, is that there is no real competitive balance in college sports. And if the NCAA were truly trying to come up with a system that achieved competitive balance, they failed miserably. And so, and even the NCAA itself has admitted that competitive balance is not their primary goal and that certain schools have inherent advantages. So uh, I don't think the name, image, and likeness payments are necessarily going to hurt that. In fact, they may balance it out a little bit more. Um, so you come back to the, the basic argument, is this going to interfere with their ability to get an education? Is this going to destroy the differentiation between pro sports and college sports? And my answer is no. Now, ultimately, it's an empirical question. Um, but, but I think it may only be a matter of time before a judge sees it the way that a lot of people in the media see it, um, and again, orders them to change. And, and it just seems like it's in the best interest of the NCAA to make some of these changes voluntarily before the whole system collapses. But when? I have no idea. Well, per usual, one of my favorite movies. Uh, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was no, just going to say, per usual, we're blowing right past our uh, promised hour. I have just one more question for you. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, kind of taking a historical look at sports law field in general, every year there's one big case or two big cases that, that you know, vaulted into the spotlight. Do you have any predictions for 2017 what that case might be? I think there's going to be a big scandal involving um, the reimbursement of Dan Wallach's travel expenses to the sports law conferences. That, that train is already gave. That, that was a 2016 controversy in my law firm. So that's already left the station. Uh, I'm hitchhiking uh, right, Denver right. for the SLA. Um, look, it's a great question. I, I think the concussion lawsuits and all the different sports um, – are, are not going anywhere despite the settlements we've seen in the NFL and the NCAA because obviously there have been opt-outs. We're going to see some individual plaintiffs, I think, in the, NH, in the NCAA. There's the medical monitoring. We're going to start seeing more lawsuits from, from former players. So I, I think that that's going to be a, a steady stream. I don't know if we're going to get anything explosive in the next year. I would be surprised if we don't get um, some sort of discipline-related dispute in one of the leagues, and certainly the NFL seems to be most susceptible to that. Again, there's no guarantee of that, but it seems like every year we get a gate in the NFL. Um, I think, depending on the progress of the cases with the NCAA, and there's any additional litigation brought by current or former players, um, and I think the just more generally with the NCAA, will student-athletes take the next step that we've almost seen and that's will the student athletes decide to get together and decide not to play a game and whether it's a regular season game whether it's a tournament game whether it's a final four um, I'm not saying that that will happen this year I'm not saying we're close to that but who knows if there will be a event that happens that pushes student-athletes to take that step, but I think that's certainly in the back of a lot of people's minds or maybe in the front of a lot of people's minds um, as student-athletes begin to or continue to push more and more for rights and as lawyers assist them in pushing for more and more rights, whether that's under labor law or antitrust law. Um, so I think those are things to look out for. I think the obviously 
sports gambling and daily fantasy sports and and you know you guys have talked about that a lot and and Dan has both of you guys have written a lot about that that's going to be significant whether that's this year or next year who knows um but I think the issue that's maybe gone under the radar a little bit there where there's a lot of room for whether it's law students who are looking for an area to write about or or young lawyers uh the the data and privacy issues around new technology and wearable technology and what we're doing with all the information we're getting about the athletes who are wearing the technology and frankly the fans who are attending these games and these privacy issues and these data issues are not unique to sports and there are privacy lawyers all around the country and all around the world trying to figure out the answers to a lot of these questions um, but they're obviously being used in specific ways or have the potential to be used in specific ways in the sports leagues. And I don't know that we have answers to a lot of the legal questions that are out there about how these can be used and, and all the information that you can get about these athletes, whether it's through drug testing or to the wearable technology or some combination of the two. So I, I would ex- expect, again, whether it's this year or the following year, an explosion in the privacy-related areas of, of sports law. Um, and and then what's great about this area is we just we just never know. All we can predict is there will be something big. We just don't know what it's going to be. One one that I wanted to ask you about just very quickly is uh, one in your backyard, the Joe McKnight case. Is that getting a lot of attention in your in your neck of the woods, or do you think that'll be uh, a huge trial this upcoming year? Or maybe I, next I think it'll be. I think it'll be big. You know, I don't know that it'll be any bigger than the Will Smith case because Will Smith uh, had. Most of the elements of the Joe McKnight case, plus Will Smith was a bigger star. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so I think the Joe McKnight case will be, will be up there. But, but to me, those are as much public interest stories as sports law stories. And not a lot of people, not that this diminishes what happened, but in terms of the interest level, not as many people know who Joe McKnight is. Certainly down here they do, and, and at USC they do. Um, but but I think the um, stand your ground laws and the way that Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office has handled this case it, it's it's been fascinating to watch, and you can learn about just the legal system generally and, and more about criminal law than sports law. But yeah, I, I think that'll 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 be a big one. But I don't think that will that will have the traction um, that a certainly that a Deflate Gate or a Donald Sterling or any of these other big cases have had. Yeah, Gabe, before we let you go, um, I want to congratulate you on uh, becoming a father of second child. I know that's, you know, recent, and um, we want to wish you and your your new your growing family, uh, you know, a happy new year. But can you can you tell us what you have on the horizon for 2017, what you're going to be working on, um, whether it's articles, conferences, or, you know, special events and, you know, relating to Tulane? Uh, what's on your horizon? Well, we, again, we've got a very busy month and a half coming up because of all of our competitions we host here down at Tulane and with the NBA All-Star Game um, in our backyard, and we'll actually be hosting a number of the events up here on campus. So there's going to be a lot to do for our law students and for just people in New Orleans. I've got a number of articles I'm writing, um, continuing to look at the way that antitrust law applies to the NCAA, continuing to think about these amateurism issues, um, 
there will be we're going to be at the Sports Lawyers Association conference in May. I don't know if I've, if we've mentioned the Sports Lawyers Association conference on this on this this pod. We have, but that's so, something. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe yeah. it needs its own its own uh, podcast. Maybe we should extend the uh, podcast so we could cover that. that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, if we had planned I, it better, we could have covered I, it. But I hear a rumor that you're going to be in Austin, Texas, and appearing at South by Southwest. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. So as you might know, Pearl Jam needs a new guitarist, and so I'm excited <laughs> that I'll be joining their tour. Yeah. I, so, um, well, Dan, why don't you tell us everybody about it? Well, you know, it, well, Gabe, um, Andrew Brandt, and I, along with uh, Sarah Ramey, are going to decide the future of uh, sports gambling in the United States at uh, South by Southwest. We were, uh, we we did a, a panel submission uh, that was voted on by the South by Southwest audience. I don't know how it got, you know, decided what weight was accorded, but uh, the the four of us did or participated in a uh, panel picker where we propose a panel, and the panel we proposed was the Sports League's evolving relationship with sports gambling. I, I think the name of the panel was, uh, oh, God, I can't. It's been so long since, since we pitched it. But lo and behold, it got accepted, and uh, we're going to be smack in the middle of South by Southwest, I think, on, on Saturday, March 11th or March 12th. Uh, I think we open for Springsteen, and uh, you know Dylan opens for us. <laughs> and it will be the four of us really you know, kind of drilling into – how the um, the sports leagues are evolving in in how they how they understand gambling and 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 that they're slowly moving uh, towards a comfort level with regulated and legal sports gambling and what that could ultimately mean to the debate and how it might affect the timing of when sports gambling becomes truly legal in this country uh, outside out of the state of Nevada. So um, realizing I wanted a return trip to Southwest and, and South by Southwest, I packed the panel with all-stars, you know, Andrew and Gabe, and uh, I'm just along for the ride. So, so Gabe, I personally wanted to thank you for participating in that, and I think we'll have a lot of fun. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll plan it sometime soon and come up with some uh, ideas, but there's a lot of time between now and March, and uh, that's the one panel. Uh, you make a joke about all the panels that I go on. That's the one I'm looking forward to the most in 2018, and I'm really honored uh, to be appearing with you on that, and hopefully we'll have some fun too. I think it will be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. South by Southwest is a is a great conference. It's a great event. It's massive. Um, again, great networking there, and, and I think – with Andrew and Sarah and you, and, and we, we think we've, we're going we're gonna to have an interesting, enlightening panel, um, and it's, it's always good to spend time with you, Dan, and you, Dan. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited for South by Southwest, and then I've got a bunch of other conferences coming up and, and speaking engagements, and so I'm uh, just looking forward to what the, uh, the new year brings us in terms of sports law developments. All right. Well, thanks. We're looking. I'm looking forward to seeing you in a few months, and of course, having having dinner with you in Austin. If uh, if you know your dance card is open, I'd I'd love to partake again. And uh, definitely looking forward to you know speaking with you again, both Dan and I. And maybe we'll have you back on the show for uh, part two of, the of SLA our planned conference episode. preview. Yes. Yeah, I'm already booked for dinner. I don't know which night, but but I'm already booked. <laughs> so I apologize. But but you know, thank you. Gabe, okay, thanks right, again. Right. That was a fantastic perspective, and I think it deserves another shout out. Of you know, we have some prospective law students looking, reading, listening to our podcast, and uh, I mean, definitely give Tulane a look. It really is um, the premier sports law law school out there. Uh, so, thanks again for stopping by. Happy New Year, and we'll talk to everybody soon. <laughs>